Welcome to Take Brain Stalk with your girl Flavella Fong Gang. And today I'm gonna fuel your brain with some bomb knowledge. Are you ready? Let's do it. Let me give you a little summary of what happened in this episode. We had a conversation with Stephen Nundy, the partner and CTO at, at Legstar, and we addressed different topics around investment. One of them was around um, tech European sovereignty, the importance of ownership, and also diversity in tech. Uh, how to be more mindful and intentional in terms of investing in diverse founders. And we'll talk about the difference between European and US VCs. And I think a lot of the assumptions are being made around this space. And let's not forget, uh, you know how much I'm passionate about ESG. So we talked about ESG and investment. And it was all the turn off and turn on when it comes to attracting investors. So I invite you to dig in and enjoy this podcast episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Tech Brain Talk. As you know, it's me, your girl, Flavilla. And today we're going to be talking about investment. Yes, it's a very important subject, especially in the technology space. As we know, 2021 has been a fantastic year in terms of investment. And that's why I'm so lucky to start this year by bringing you the creme de la creme in investment space, Stephen Nandy. And Stephen Nandy is an experienced technologist and engineer with a passion for setting strategy, introducing technology, innovation, and building high-performing teams for ambitious global businesses. Stephen leads investing in digitalization and deep tech companies where he has led transactions in artificial intelligence, machine learning, B2B SaaS, and data analytics companies, among others. So we're going to be talking about investment, but not only from a tech entrepreneur point of view, but also talking about what investors can do the right way and what they should be doing and be excited because I am. So how are you, Stephen? Hey, I'm doing good. Good to uh, good to be invited. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I had to invite you. It's funny because, you know, I've been doing Tech Brains Talk now for uh, now it's my third season. I realized, why have I not had conversations with people that I really like and are brilliant? And, and of course, we've been on... on um, speakers uh, on the same at the same event and it was just perfect because i was like i'm a fan of this man i want to hear what he has to say and it's always good to speak to investors so that's very that's very nice of you i keep on you know i listen to your podcast and listen to the different people you've had on board and you know as an ex-technologist myself i guess it's i've now moved on to the dark side and now invest in in technology companies so uh, hopefully this this will prove to be a useful conversation Yes, well, you know, I'm glad that you say that. So do tell us, how did your journey led you to be where you are right now? Well, you know, I, I'm a computer scientist at heart. I'm a, I'm a geek. Um, I joined uh, this, this bank called Goldman Sachs, that I'm sure you've heard of, um, straight from university, as a, as a computer programmer with, uh, within this, this unit, which dealt with hedge funds at the time. It was a brand new thing. And before I knew it, I had, uh, I'd been working in London for three years. I then ended up having an opportunity to work in in Asia, and I lived in Tokyo for five, building out engineering teams across that region in Hong Kong and Singapore, and, and obviously in, in Tokyo as well. And then I came back to London just before the financial crisis, and before I knew it, I was running larger and larger teams on a, on a global basis, and you know managing lots of different diverse technology groups, technology stacks, user groups, challenges in a regulated environment, and it was thoroughly. Um, interesting and uh, and stimulating, but um, before I knew it, twenty years was up, and uh, I decided, wow, what do I what do I do now? Do I continue doing what I'm doing, or do I 
do something different. And towards the end of my time at Goldman, I was spending time with some of the investors there. I was talking to a bunch of investors as well about fintech and about other tech startups and technologies that we might have used within Goldman. And I realized that perhaps, you know, spending more time on the investment side and evaluating technologies and thinking about the future and what teams we should be investing in and supporting and funding might be um, an interesting career switch. And that's what I did. Yes, we did. And I think it's interesting that, you know, and I think deep down you you have a mindset of an entrepreneur because the entrepreneurs always want to, you know, keep them, you know, keep themselves active and try to think I can be quite complacent and enjoy what I'm doing right now or do, do something that I believe needs to be done and investment is something that we talk a lot about. And I think it's interesting because, um, 2021 has been, uh, we talked about a lot, has been probably the one year where we have seen the biggest investment in technology. Is that right? Yeah, it's been, it's been a monster year um, globally. And I think here within Europe, you know, Europe has really come of age in the last few years. The, the number of unicorns, which obviously always grab the headlines, right? The, the headlines are always the unicorns and the IPOs. It's been a, it's been a record year on any measure within Europe. And I think we are, we're really seeing now, um, you know, the, 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 the time in the sun for Europe as, as we have now second, third, fourth generation entrepreneurs starting new businesses and learning from, you know, previous um, experiences and, and building teams and building great product and really challenging the status quo with, with the US and Asia. Yes, but you know it's interesting because quite often I hear, and um, obviously the two of us are surrounded by people who are tech entrepreneurs who believe that they have to go to America to get the money that they want or to to become a unicorn. Why do you think this is happening, and what's the difference between VC in Europe and VC in the US? I think that that whole um, storyline of have to go to the US is is one that's a little bit dated now. If you actually look at a lot of the entrepreneurs that have done amazingly well on the west coast of the US or the east coast of the US, they're actually European migrants, who many of whom have who've now come back to come back to Europe. And that was back in the day when, you know, the 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 access to capital, the, the money um, was really all sitting in the US. But now we've got a, a very active um, early investment kind of VC ecosystem here in Europe. We've got a very active growth um kind of ecosystem as well. We've got governments that are lending support. And now increasingly you're seeing US VCs, you know, challenging us Europeans to uh, to, to invest in the best companies here in Europe as well. So I think there's been a, a real sea change and um, used to be access to money. Um, I don't, I think that's gone away now. And so now it's about access to talent, which is typically the the, the piece that is really driving where people locate themselves or where their customers are. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because uh, talent for any company, especially in the, in the tech space, is the biggest challenge because, I mean, everybody's growing, but you need to have people who can do the work. And let's talk about diversity. We can talk about diversity later on, but talent is um, is so key. And, and I think that's going to be one of the growing challenges in terms of how we how are we looking at, at talent pool? Are we looking from a from a, a national scale? Are we looking from an international scale? Now we've, you know, we hear about the growth of, of um a number of way of reinventing how the, how the workspace, how we work, you know, do we need to be next to each other? And, and that's another thing that really, that's another conversation, but it just opened my mind when it comes to talent. But thinking about, you know, coming back to as an investor, obviously you are in Europe, we are in the UK. And um, do you think the way for the tech companies or the tech entrepreneurs listening to this podcast right now, do you think they, have, they should have a different approach in terms of the way they, Pitch to pitch to tech 
to VC in Europe and the way they pitch to VCs in America? Um, I speak to a number of founders here who are pitching to both. I think now the style of of, of how you pitch is, is is very, very similar. I think it really depends on what is it that you're wanting at this stage of your growth. If you are looking for a lot of help, um, advice, you want someone to bounce ideas off of, perhaps you want access to people's networks, then then obviously working with a European investor, if you're a European-based and your early customers are in Europe, makes a lot of sense. Um, at some point, though, if you are a hyper-growth company and you're looking to start selling to the US or to Asia, then of course having investors from other locations who can bring their networks to the table um, makes a big difference as well. But in terms of the actual way you pitch, to an investor, I think that's become quite homogenous. However, what I would say is that, you know, what I'm seeing is that a lot of European entrepreneurs love the fact that the European VC ecosystem has kind of grown up and that they can now talk to European growth investors because there's increasingly enough capital here or access to capital where if you're trying to do a large funding round, you don't have to talk to just the large US VCs. There's now a number of us here in Europe who are able to write larger checks to help those companies go through the next stage of growth. Mm. And I think that's important that those changes happen. And it also comes brings me back to when, when we talk as a woman, I'm, I'm not a tech entrepreneur, but we could talk a lot about diversity and that keeps coming back. We know that women are not getting as much um, investment as much as white men, but how do you see it? Do you think that's something that can be changed in a space of a year or would it take a decade? What is your, what is your view on that? I think in, in many walks of life, um, Flavilla, we've got, we've got issues with diversity and underrepresentation, um, And, you know, these things aren't solved overnight. And, uh, you know, there's lots of statistics around, you know, the, the perceived and, and actual lack of funding that's hitting, um, you know, women founders or underrepresented founders. Um, but these things will take time, right? And so, you know, of course you can measure you know, at the at the high level, you know, number of IPOs where we got women CEOs, or tech or tech growth investment rounds where you've got um, black or or underrepresented um, founders. Um, but ultimately, you can only invest in the best companies. Us as a VC, we want to invest in the best entrepreneurs and the best companies. And so, it really starts dialing back right down to grassroots level. Like how how do you make sure that there's a good diverse mix of of entrepreneurs starting companies at the very beginning and then you go back even further and say well how do you make sure that you're educating people as to what does it mean to be an entrepreneur what does the life of an entrepreneur look like what are the skills you need to be an entrepreneur do, are they innate or are they something that are learned and then you start going back even further and say well how does social conditioning start occurring at at university or at schools or at the home and so these things take take a, a long time to really kind of shake out. So I think this is going to be measured in years. Um, maybe it will be a decade before we start seeing, you know, true equalization of the numbers. But again, what what are we what are we looking for here? Are we looking for 50-50? Are we looking for a, another number? I, I, I don't know. I know that we need to do better, but I also know that this is going to come from, you know, the grassroots all the way up through to where we invest and where others invest and, and ultimately to hopefully some large outcomes for, for female or underrepresented founders in the future. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny because when I hear you speak and I realize that we tend to want to find or 
it's, um, it's going to be hard what I'm going to say, but I think it's a it's a two way street. Two you know two things need to happen from both sides. What do the investors need to start doing and start thinking differently? It's a mindset shift, but also at the end of the day, if you're an investor, you want to make your return on investment. So you're not gonna. It's not a charity. Otherwise, you know, you just give you know you give money. And on the other side is that do we have um, you know female or black uh, entrepreneurs out there who know how to pitch? And, you know, this is where, you know, as you see yourself, a lot of work needs to be done and conditioning, mindset conditioning and, and um, you know, finding the right formula, you know, and again, something, and I'm looking at it from my point of view, you know, being a, a black female, I've been very intentional of how I choose who I choose to work with. But, you know, and we all live in a bubble. So our own perception, our own vision of the world is, is completely different. But looking at it, it's really just, you know, bouncing back on what you just say. What is the first? What is the thing that we can do now as investors? What would you recommend investors to do now? I think um, you know, as an investor, I, I spend time with um, with female founders and with with black founders, just giving candid feedback mm. um, at the earliest stage possible. You know, we are we are not traditionally early stage VC investors. We do do a little bit of of, of very early seed stage investing. We're mainly what we call Series A and and beyond and growth investors. But increasingly, I'm spending time doing open office hours with um, with underrepresented founders just to have that kind of Chatham House rules, kind of candid feedback time. I think as an industry, sometimes as as investors, we're challenged in, do we actually give candid feedback to the entrepreneur as to why we're passing on an opportunity to invest in their idea or in their company at this stage? It can sometimes be very convenient for us just to say, oh, you're a little bit too early for us. Or we want to see better, more KPIs in the future, or you know some other kind of platitude. But what it's what we're not incentivized as investors sometimes is to give the honest feedback as to well, actually, you know, we kind of think your your idea has already been done, or the way you're presenting your idea is not compelling enough right now for us to really understand you know your big vision, or I don't see you as an individual perhaps being ready to. You know, take a a you know millions of dollars of other people's money and hire the best teams. You know that's that's honest feedback. That whilst we may give that in a corporate setting, um, when we're trying to give feedback to employees, in an investor entrepreneur relationship, there sometimes isn't much upside in you being you know fully open and fully frank because in the future you you may learn live to regret you know what you might say. Mm. That's true. Is there any without saying companies, but is there any um any companies that you've regretted not investing? <laughs> oh, the, the 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 kind of the fabled shadow portfolio of missed opportunities. Look, there's there's always there's always companies that um you know I've looked at and and worked with and have either tried to invest in and, and not quite got there, or that have dismissed as paying, you know not quite a, a good fit for for the style of investing that we do and have done phenomenally well. You know that that always happens, and I say to say to our team here at Lakestar that you know there's always going to be another great opportunity to invest the capital that we've been privileged enough to be given by our investors, and so you know we need to just be patient. And they, if we do get it wrong and we we don't make the right investment in somebody, or we don't make an investment when we wish we should have done, that there'll be there'll be another entrepreneur that we'll meet next week or next month that will get us super excited that we're going to want to. Um, kind of uh, invest in at that point and we can join their journey. 
Yeah, it's true. And I think I think that's the hardest part of any investment, whether you invest in crypto or you invest in obviously businesses. Um, you know, it's always the, the the waiting game that you know it's not a gamble, but being patient enough to be and believe in, in what you uh, what you <laughs> invest in. Exactly. There was there was an interesting one of our one of our um, companies, a company called Blockchain dot com. Um, gentleman called Peter Smith is the founder there. You know, he uses this phrase: um, "It's never too late to be early." Mm. And I think that's a really good way of looking at life. And if I look back on my career. I remember when I joined Goldman, I, I kind of wished that I wish if, if only I'd joined three years earlier. Um, if and then about five or six years into my career, I had the the graduates that were joining were then saying to me, "Oh, I wish I'd joined when you joined, Stephen." And you realise that you're always looking back through rose tinted glasses and wishing that you'd, with with hindsight, that you'd done something a little bit earlier, a little bit different. But in in three or four years' time, you people are going to be looking back and wishing they'd made you know, the investments that you'd made today. And so there's always going to be new opportunities and, and growth. Absolutely. And that brings me back to, you know, when I think about, you know, the, the journey of growth is also the journey of learnings. And what has been some of the learnings, maybe things that you've learned for your 20 years at Goldman Sachs that you've applied now as an investor? Um, I, I really enjoy hard problems. Um, if I think about my time at Goldman I got the most excited, the most fulfillment when we were solving really complex technical or business problems. And so when I look at investing, um, I like investing in teams where the problems that they're solving are also really gnarly, difficult, ugly, tricky problems, um, and therefore aren't likely to be something that someone else is going to want to go and copy um, in in any reasonable time soon. And so really investing in this team's time and intellectual property and their passion for solving this 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 challenge that they foresee um, and that they're dedicated to it. And so I think that's probably you know the learning that I, I apply greatly when it comes to investing. I, do, I don't like investing in copycats. I like investing in teams that have really found a, a unique solution to a, a really challenging problem. A scalable problem, a problem that can be solved at scale as well. I think from a technology point of view, that's this is so important. Yeah, um, look, we we invest in companies. We invest in companies that have really large ambitions. Mm-hmm. So we're not looking at investing necessarily in companies that have an ambition which is just is geogra- geographically bounded. In many cases, we like companies that will that have applications across Europe or have an application across the world. And so working with teams with large ambitions um, at scale is, is obviously something which gets us very excited as well. Yes. It's funny because you know, you like me as well, and I'm very, obviously, as a branding person, I always talk about mission statement and the importance of understanding that. And you mentioned this as well as an important key of the success of a company, mission statement, and you bring it back. And I think that no matter what we do, even if we work in technology, it's always about people. And you emphasize the importance of having a team. And um, and I think that you say as well is understanding of a global reach and perspective. I would love if you can tell us more about that. Well, I think um, you know having having a an inspirational mission. You know you're going to have to hire people to to solve this problem, and so people are going to want to work for you. And so being very mission driven and product driven, it needs to be in your DNA, and that's something that that we look for. Mm-hmm. And and you're going to need people to want to follow you. So you're going to have to be a great leader. 
you know that's that goes without saying and so you know these are some of the aspects that really make you know very good very good global teams um you know we also spend you know time you know helping on the recruitment side on the talent side that's you know having having the ability to really hire um at scale is something that every one of our companies needs to be able to do Mm. Do you know what? I'm going to keep, we've reached half of the, of the episode and I want to ask, please do, my dear listeners, please stay with us because we're going to ask Stephen about what are the things that are turning off and turning on when it comes to investing in businesses. So we'll be back in a couple of seconds. You are listening to Tech Brains Talk, a conversation on the strategy of becoming a remarkable individual and creating iconic tech brands. Your host is Flavilla von Gang author, speaker, and founder of Three Colors Rule, a creative branding and marketing agency for tech companies. For more information, go to threecolorsrule.com. If you found this podcast helpful, please help us by telling your friends and rating us a five stars on iTunes. Thank you. Now, back to where we left it off. All right, everybody, I'm still with Stephen Nandy, and we've been talking about investment, and I think it was a lot of learnings. Um, and as usual, you know, I always ask you to listen twice because I think even me, I'm going to listen twice. Um, and when it comes to investment, really, I think we need to reframe our mind when it comes to um, European versus American investment, but also the importance of having a, a strong team. I think team is always important and also attracting the right talent, but also making yourself, uh, you know, attractive to an investor who, like Stephen, who is busy because probably receive about 20 slides uh, 20, 20 presentations per day. I don't know, Stephen, how many do you receive per day? Oh, we, yeah, we get a lot. We get a lot each day. <laughs> so I want to talk about that. What really brings you to say yes and what it brings you to say, no, nah, I'm not interested. So what? obviously you are not investing in every tech business. You are very specific in terms of who you choose to invest in. I think they're having clarity around that. And I think it's probably one of the biggest mistakes as well, mistakes that I see um, tech entrepreneurs uh, don't do. It's like know exactly what each VCs or investors are interested in. So you don't go and just send the same deck to everybody. So talking about you specifically, Stephen, and the work that you're doing at Lexstar, what really turns you on and what turns you off? What turns me on and off? Um, I think, you know, one of the aspects that's, that's always surprised me um, over the last few years as I've been doing this is, 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 is we're about to enter into a relationship with the founder that's probably going to last anything seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe more years, mm. and and so I really need to see and feel that that person, like in any marriage, wants to be around for that period of time solving the problem that they they plan to solve. And so a question I often ask is, so why why do you intend to spend the next ten years of your life solving this problem? And it's always interesting to see the reaction that you perhaps get from entrepreneurs when you when you ask that question. Sometimes you get a sense of excitement in their eyes, like this is why this is a 10-year journey, or maybe I'm going to be doing this for the next 20 years. The rest of my life, I'm going to be doing this. And others, you see a little bit of fear and kind of, oh, 10 years. Well, I actually think there may be you know, an exit much sooner than that. And it's very interesting to see what kind of reaction that that question provokes. And so you know, that, you know, how people respond to those kind of questions really gets me either excited or intrigued and helps me learn a lot more about kind of their, their inner passion for, and resilience to the journey that they're, they've already started and they are going to continue for many, many years yet. 
I love that. I love that. You know, it's funny because I do an exercise as well, similar where I, and I put a, a, a journal where it's empty and I say, imagine that your company name is on, is on the cover. What does it say? And you can see exactly what you see. And even if they're super excited, you know, what, what are we talking about in the next 10 years about your business? And yeah. again, something you can see, people have no idea. Like, oh, or they are completely different. And it's really a test of having vision and clarity in terms of where you're going. And the purpose of what you're trying to achieve is more than money. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the other aspect which has been interesting is there's different styles of how people pitch to you. But I think if you're sitting there and you're five minutes into the pitch and you still haven't quite understood what the business is or the problem they're trying to solve is, then it's all well and good for you to say, well, it's too complex. I need more than five minutes. But but fundamentally, if you've not kind of kind of set set the uh, the, the line out and you've, you've started kind of catching the interest of the investor after five minutes, then it's an uphill struggle. Mm. And so I didn't say to all, all entrepreneurs, really think about how you open your pitch. How do you explain in those first few minutes, what is it you're trying to achieve? Why are you trying to achieve it? And, and how are you planning on solving it? Um, and leave all the other stuff about, you know, the size of the market, you know, perhaps the great universities you've been to or the great organizations that you worked for right to the end, because it's very off-putting when you you have to sit through five or 10 minutes of people's bios before you even get to the first kind of point on what, what is the problem they're solving. It's, uh, you know, we, we assume that everyone's going to have an interesting background and history, but let's not lead with that. Let's let's that become a, a kind of a tail end conversation. Let's really get into the meat of the area that you're that you're you've got a passion for first. Sounds like a formula. Why? What? How? It's very simple. <laughs> People don't yeah. get be getting it. Why? How? What? How? And then get to the point. And then yeah. exactly. Just let's let's get let's get into the meat of the uh, the conversation as quickly as possible. That's my that's my view. I love that. And and numbers. Do the numbers are important? Knowing your numbers, I'm pretty sure they are. No. No. It depends on the, again. Depends on the stage that you're at. If you're if you're early and you've just started making your first revenues, then of course you, you should know what your revenue numbers are. You should know how you're thinking about the next year. But there's going to be a, a significant amount of variation in, in your predictions versus the outcome, right? There's No one's got a, a perfectly formed crystal ball. Mm-hmm. I think as you become a, a, a growth company and you start kind of going through the, the letters of the alphabet when it comes to your rounds of funding, then obviously knowing your numbers is, and where there's inefficiencies and where there's efficiency gains is going to come a larger and larger part of, of you showing the investor how much control and insights you've got into the various parts of your your organization so it depends on where you are but um you know it's 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 always great to have someone who knows their numbers but there's no point you know being able to reel off the predictions of your forecast over the next 12 to 24 months if you've only been making revenues for the last six because you're probably going to be wrong yeah (laughs) absolutely so there's no point to try to like to lie or bump number just be honest. Yeah, just be honest. What about the turnoff? Well, turnoffs, as I said, was is really where people don't get to the point quickly mm. enough about what they're trying to achieve. Um, and they spend a lot of time talking about their education or the great companies they've worked for in the past. You know, mm. you know, obviously looking back at your history is important to all of us. And it's a it's I think perhaps it makes us human is that we we collect these badges of honor and these these experiences over our life and we like to credentialize ourselves with with new people we're meeting for the first time. But um, you don't need to tell your entire life story before you get to the 
the the the area that you're investing in. So I, I find that a turn off. And I, I I say to people, look, we'll get to know each other over the course of a number of meetings. You don't need to prove to me in the first five minutes, you know, your your credentials. Hundred percent. But that also brings me back to a conversation, um, a point that is becoming more and more um, on everybody's lips, which is ESG. And ESG seems to be also the kind of the uh, reason why investors would be more mindful in terms of who they choose to invest. How do you feel about when it comes to ESG? What is your view on that? You know, ESG is an, is an, an incredibly important topic. And I'm not just saying that. I think um, if you'd have asked me five years ago, 10 years ago, I'd have probably have said it's more of a, um, it's not something that's, that I've, I'd have taken as much to heart. But I think, you know, certainly now, it's an area which you know we all spend a lot of time thinking about and and focusing on and there's many aspects that make up ESG right so it could be about us being an ESG investor you know are we investing in in um, in companies that are going to make you know green energy um, more uh, cheaper is it going to um, allow us to to solve the kind of um, waste production um, but it's also about just being a responsible investor you know are you investing in companies where you feel and you can see improve that the governance is is strong. That you've got you know a great um, uh, you know you've got a great founding team that represents you know the the right caliber, the right diversity of 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 folks that represent perhaps the customers of that business. Um, if there are issues within that company, how are they being reported? How they're being governed? Um, if there are um, you know concerns regarding you know the um, the, the 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 any discipline that may be happening internally you know are they being people being treated with respect there's there's many aspects that make up ESG it's not just about are you investing in in impact companies or companies that are perhaps going to allow us to have a, a net zero outcome yeah. of course that's part of it but that's not the whole story so you know we definitely advocate responsible investing and we're part of a number of initiatives um, in this space and you know we uh, we take a lot of time internally when we make investments asking these questions of each other as an investment partnership mm-hmm. you know how do we feel how do we feel about these this company's ESG credentials yeah very important I'm glad that you say that because I really care a lot about ESG and I think it should be more and more uh, on every company's, you know, agenda when they think about yeah their growth to do the right way. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even think it's a choice. It's not a choice anymore. Not a choice. It's not a choice at all. It's 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 just the way we have to be. And you know, I think people see this as sometimes as a, an extra bit of administration. But again, that's not the way it should be either. This is this is clearly get better outcomes by making sure that that ESG is a topic that that companies. Um, and us as investors take seriously. Take seriously, absolutely. Talking about sovereignty and and in European tech space, and um, that's probably something that is not talked a lot about. So, when it comes, to so, that, yes, let's talk about it because that's also one of your strengths. So, yeah. Now we're we're you know I'm I'm a proud European, and um, whilst I obviously I'm British and I live here in in London, mm. I invest in companies. Um, all over Europe. I'm, I'm on the board of companies in Spain, Portugal, Germany, Switzerland, um, here in the UK and, and in, in the US as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, European tech sovereignty is, is, a, is very important. And the best way of describing what European tech sovereignty is, is, you know, let, let's think about the cloud. Let's think about, you know, the big cloud providers right now. You've got AWS, you've got GCP, and you've got Azure all large US companies. Let's think about payments and payments rails over the last 20, 30 years. 
You've had Visa, MasterCard, American Express, all large US companies who basically, whether I'm buying a coffee from my local coffee shop here in South London, you know, the fact that I go and use my contactless kind of HSBC card, it's all going over the Visa rails. So I'm actually, it's, it's amazing that even though I'm buying a coffee from a local a local coffee shop, I'm, I'm using an American platform to basically make that, that three pound payment. Mm. And so if we then think about, you know, all the emerging technologies that we where we um, want society to, to to benefit from over the next 10, 20 years. I think as Europeans, I think we need more European winners. I think we need to um, have better balance and choice so that as we go forward, we have really strong indigenous European options for us to, to um, choose as consumers or and for us to invest in as well as, as, as investors. And so, you know, some examples of this that uh, I know I've invested in recently, I invested in a company in Germany called, um, with my colleagues called ESAR Aerospace, which are looking to um, put low Earth orbit um, satellites into space. They're a launcher company. And um, that's really come off the back of, well, if you want to put thousands of satellites into space, into constellations above our head here in Europe, so that every 90 minutes, you know, they are whizzing around the, the, the planet, you know, really, you've got to use a launcher in in Russia, China, India, or the US. And so we've got all these CubeSats that we're building here in Europe, and we're having to put them on a ship out to the US, to New Jersey, and then they come off the loader, they then get kind of carted across the US. And who knows what happens to them on that journey. But one thing's for sure is that you can't be sure that they've not been tampered with, right? Um, And so having control of the skies above our head, I think is something that us as Europeans should be more in control of. And we've got the Ariane program here in in Europe, and that's great. Um, But that's a that's a big beast. Mm -hmm. And so we need more options for us to be able to own the space above our head. So that's a good opportunity for us to invest in in European companies. Another one would be perhaps let's take um, uh, GPT-3 in the AI space, right? Where you're thinking about um, language models and GPT-3, um, OpenAI owned by owned now by Microsoft. And so, you know, these big language models, again, they, they are really tailored um, very much to the American market. Um, and so what's happening with with um, us, us Europeans? If I want to kind of use a, a big data, a big language model, you know, what, what options do I have here in Europe? What, what companies could I use that are really trained on European data sets, on European nuances, on European ethics, on European um, kind of uh, local local businesses um, and, and local customs? Mm. And so if, if you were to ask a, a, a US-based large language model platform, you know, name me a, a, um, a, a, a big football team, they're probably going to say the New York Giants. They're probably unlikely to say, you know, PSG or Tottenham Hotspur or Liverpool, right? Um, because they just don't have the context of us being Europeans. Mm. It's interesting because the way you talk about European tech sovereignty is the same way we can talk about diversity as well. Because um, it looks like the way we're looking at we're looking at things that something, some initiatives needs to happen so with the mindset shift. So we don't lose that ownership, whatever it is, implementing having more, more European technology companies do more things to, pro, you know, to, to, to protect, you know, ownership or whatever it is, having more diversity. What is it? So my question to you really is what are the initiatives that investors need to have or approach they need to make uh, 
opportunity to have, should I say, to make the right decision. Because when you talk about diversity, you say naturally you or you you create this open space for conversation and support. So what needs to happen from an investor point of view for us to protect European tech sovereignty? I think sometimes you know we a lot of these these opportunities are coming in the deeper tech um, investment arena, and so as Europeans, I think we need to feel that we can take some bolder bets, you know, be it in the pharmaceutical space, be it in quantum computing, be it in, as I said, some of the the AI platforms that I've talked about, be in space tech, um, robotics. And so these aren't these aren't areas that any investor necessarily can suddenly turn their hand to. It's not like looking at a B2B SaaS company or a consumer app company where you can get it straight away. You can click your fingers, you understand the business model, you understand the KPIs and you can go and make an investment. In, in some of these, you really need to you know, spend a lot of time with the founding teams. You've got to think about, is this, is this technology likely to succeed? Is this the team that's likely to, 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 to solve this, this problem? Um, and then you need to have some conviction. Um, and that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, in, in Europe is us actually showing the same levels of conviction that perhaps... Um, our American counterparts have had over the last um, 10, 20, 30 years. Yes, yeah. Um, I, think that's, I think that's one of our, our biggest challenges. So that's, we, we, we certainly need to do that. And there's, you know, in Europe, we're fundamentally set up in a slightly different way as well. You know, the way, again, post-war, we had, um, you know, the banks really, really funding the growth of businesses and SMBs across Europe. You know, that, that's all changed. Those economics have changed. The, the, the banks today in Europe cannot fund innovation. You can't, as a, as a, as a tech entrepreneur, go to your bank and, and get the levels of indebtedness that you could in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s to go and build a business. Banks just don't know how to do that. They're just not set up to lend you at this early stage in your journey that kind of money in the way that they did back, back then. Um, they're more risk adverse. Regulation has insisted on that. And so, again, the the place for venture capital to step in is um, is 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 now as well here in Europe. You know, we need to step up and and you know back some of these 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 great ideas. Um, and we're going to get it wrong sometimes, and that's okay. That's the venture model: is that not every investment you make works out. Some investments don't, and actually, majority of investments that you make don't end up working out to, to a massive degree. And so again, but you need to be comfortable with that level of risk. And that's not something us as Europeans have been that comfortable with traditionally. No, absolutely. And I think that's, that's, that comes back again to a, a mindset of, well, this is not something that we want to, you know, dig in because of the risk attached to it. And But do you think that is something that needs to be led by VCs, uh, private companies, or the government, European Union should be involved into this type of initiatives? Well, the, the governments um, around Europe are investing. They have several programs, many programs in place um, across many of the countries to, to invest in deeper tech um, or deep tech initiatives. Um, but they can't do it alone either, right? Just taking in a government grant um, or get, getting cash from a pseudo government um, sovereign um, isn't going to necessarily mean you're going to be successful. You still need private investors um, such as VCs to be involved as well to kind of help kind of either 
you know, make that funding round larger so that there's enough capital to kind of get you over the to the to the next milestone that hopefully gets you to commercialization. But also, you know, the 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 journey of an entrepreneur, some entrepreneurs can do it all by themselves, right? Some entrepreneurs actually don't even need funding. They're so successful in either raising their own money from family and friends or they've got their own capital. They don't need people like me to 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 help them. But that's the unusual case. Most entrepreneurs, you know, do want to have the benefit of a team, an investment team behind them. And remember that when we invest, you know, we're we're usually part of a team of investors. We as Lakestar may put money in, but there may have been one, two, three other VCs before we get involved who've also invested in this company. There may be many other VCs after us who are also invested in this company. So the the founder is is typically looking for, you know, help along the way as well. And so us as an investment community need to be open to helping these types of entrepreneurs also which again may take us out of our comfort zone may require us to get more us to get more educated as well and so you know we've become very thematic at lake star in making sure that we're building investment teams within my organization that that are experts in in some of these areas as well so that when we do meet these these kind of remarkable entrepreneurs that we understand their business models we understand the technologies that they're using we understand the marketplace that they are trying to disrupt um and so that we've we've already got kind of the our brain primed for the conversation rather than learning something new for the first time absolutely and you know it's interesting that you said that because i think um for when you, when obviously tech entrepreneurs are looking for investors they they forget that the commitment goes is is both ways so you have to make sure that you choose a partner a vc that has committed to you understand your industry not just take your money because how many divorce has happened because you know i've taken the wrong people have taken the wrong investment just because they wanted the money and they were desperate and there's a there's a there's a danger with that as well but yes it's, it's really to make sure that they understand your industry they're committed to you to your growth and not just hope to get the money out and exit the quickest way you know they, they can exactly you know we we invest with um, out of a 10 year vehicle. And so we're not looking for a, a quick kind of return on the investment. We realize these things take time. Um, but at the same time, we're looking for entrepreneurs who who want us to be part of the journey with them, right? We're, we're not passive investors. We are very active. We take board seats and we like to get involved in the day-to-day with the company. Wow. I, I, if, if I was running a deep tech company, I <laughs> would come to you for sure. I want to leave you one last question, Stephen, and which is more about you. And um, and I love this is my favorite question, which is about legacy. So, how would you like to be remembered? Wow, you didn't prepare me for this one before we did the interview, <laughs> did you? How would I like to be remembered um, as being helpful? I think if if there's one thing that if if people just say, "Oh, that Stephen guy, he was helpful. He helped me," I think. To me, that would be a great legacy to have because I think we all take a lot from relationships over the years. And right now, I kind of feel as I'm at a stage where I'm I'm wanting to give a lot. And so if that gets recognized and, and people see that I've been helpful in some way of helping them on their journey or helping them with the next round of funding or helping with some feedback, even if we don't invest, I think I'd be very happy if that's if that's how people refer to me as. As being helpful, and I think it's a great legacy. And I think, I've, as knowing you personally, I've seen you've done that so many times, helpful and giving to people. And I think that's a good way to be remembered. Stephen, if you want to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you? Don't give your email address, please. <laughs> um, you can get hold of me on Twitter at Stephen Nundy. Um, 
that's probably the easiest way of getting hold of me. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Pretty easy to find. My my surname is relatively unusual. Um, so those two approaches is probably the best. There you go. Okay, so Stephen, but written S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Okay, don't get confused, people. Um, so, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. This is the end of a fantastic podcast with uh, an investor who was honest, true to himself, and give us some uh, good advice from an investor point of view, but also from an entrepreneur point of view. So listen to it twice and see you very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.